May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. In the past, I've used um, some work of Brian McLaren's in a book that I'm still reading slowly. That's why I listen to books. Reading, reading books takes a long time. Uh, and he talks about how we see the world through um, different lenses or understand the world through different worldviews. We use these worldviews to make sense of the information that we're getting and our place in the world. And he suggests that the three common worldviews or lenses are rivalry. I have to be better than you. So we can see that with Donald Trump. He has to be the most intelligent, the richest, the, and the best ever. Uh, and because he is and he's president, then America has to be that. This, everything is done in terms of rivalry. Uh, then there's compliance, where uh, I will obey the rules, and these are the rules and I will obey them. And a lot of Christians live that way. These are the rules, this is what it means to be a Christian, I will obey them, that means I'm a good Christian. So that's the worldview that they understand their lives through. And then there's meaningless mechanism, where the universe is a mechanism and we simply play our, life, our role in it at the end of it. Something happens, I'm not sure what. Now, Brian McLaren talks about these as a way of understanding how most of us operate and then goes on to suggest that actually uh, Jesus is offering a fourth way, which we will get to in a minute. Last week we looked at the story, of the unfinished story, of the father and his two sons, which is a story of scandalous love. That is the fourth way, scandalous love. And if we look at that story, we can see how those were well, not the meaningless mechanism, but the story of right, the worldview of rivalry and, uh, and compliance are at work. So the youngest son, well, let's look at why Jesus told the story. So there were scribes and Pharisees that were getting antsy about the fact that Jesus was uh, honouring and blessing tax collectors and sinners by eating with them. Now, in their worldview... To be part of the people of God meant that you had to be compliant. You had to follow the rules. And they were the rule keepers. And in some ways they were the rule makers. They knew what the rules were and they kept them. They were the right people to be honoured and blessed. The people that Jesus was eating with did not keep the rules. And yet Jesus was still honouring and blessing them. In their worldview, Jesus was being bad. They were not being rule keepers. They were rule keepers. Jesus was breaking the rules by honouring and blessing those people. So Jesus tells them the story about this unfinished story about the father and two sons. And the, the youngest son, well, we could see that he, he kind of saw the world through the eyes of rivalry. He was better than anyone else. He was beyond the rules. He was the one who was better than his father, he was better than his older brother, he just wanted to cash up and move out. So off he goes. The older brother saw the world through compliance. He was the dutiful son. He obeyed the rules. He did exactly as he was expected to do. He was his father's best servant, as he describes himself. And then we have the father who operates on a completely different worldview. 
Scandalous love. Not just love, but scandalous love. Love that broke all the rules. All the rules about how he should treat his younger son. All the rules about how he should treat his older son. All the rules. He broke them. Scandalous love. And the story then is about how each of those characters responds to that love. The younger son is found by that love. He discovers when he returns home, and this time he's going to be compliant, he changes his world view from being the best to I will obey the rules, I will come back, I can't be a son, but I could at least be a servant and I will live as a servant. I will obey the rules, I will be compliant. And instead he is found by love. And when he is found by love, he discovers that he is a beloved son despite everything that he has done. There is nothing he can do that can earn that sonship. He is simply a beloved son. The scandalous love overwhelms him. He is found by that. The older son, well, who knows? The same scandalous love, the same you are my beloved son, even though you think you're being compliant, but you're breaking so many of the rules yourself, How does the older son respond to that? How do the Pharisees and scribes respond to that? Today we're told the story also of scandalous love. The story of Mary. An evocative story. An important story. Some version of the story and a picture might come up at any moment. Some, hopefully... Some version of the story is in every gospel. The people change. It's always a woman doing scandalous stuff. Uh, Sometimes in one of the gospels it's a prostitute. Uh, Sometimes it's his head being anointed, not his feet. Sometimes his feet being washed with tears and dried with hair. But there is a version of the story in each of the Gospels. Which given that the Christmas story is not in each of the Gospels, and there are a whole lot of others, like even the resurrection stories are pretty different between the Gospels. Mark is very short. That's an astounding thing, to have one story in each of the Gospels. There are very few stories that are in all the Gospels. So... The fact that this one is there means this was an important story. It held something about the gospel and how we respond to the gospel. This is a story of a woman who has discovered in Jesus that she is a beloved daughter. She's not better than anyone else. She has not earned this. She simply is. And so she responds with this Scandalous, and it is scandalous and evocative gesture, this gift of love. She is living in a house where the stench of death is in every nook and cranny. It is everywhere. The stench of her brother's death, Lazarus, who has was recently dead and is now sitting at the table. The stench of Jesus' death, When the disciples return for Lazarus, Thomas says, We will go with you and we will die with you there. 
They know that to return to Jerusalem is death. There can be no other end to the story. Before the story, we hear how the chief priests and the scribes are plotting. They want Jesus dead. After the story, they also plot against Lazarus. Because his being raised from death is causing too much of a stir. They need him out of the way. Death surrounds the story. And in the midst of that death, in the midst of the stench of death, she gives to him a gift that is life-giving. And the smell of that gift goes throughout the house. One of the commentators I read compared this story with the story at the wedding of Cana. The wedding of Cana, Mary, in a very motherly way, prompts Jesus into his ministry. The Spirit works through her to make him act. So he had gathered some people together and he'd started teaching, but this was the first time, the wedding at Cana, where he did something. The first sign is how John describes it. And it was because Mary said to him, just get on with it, as mothers need to do on occasions. This story, she says, this is exact, and that was exactly what Jesus needed at that point. At this point, this Mary does exactly what Jesus needs at this, at this point. He is on the edge of a precipice. The next story, after the plotting to kill Lazarus, is Palm Sunday. The minute he gets on that donkey, the minute he rides through the gates in Jerusalem, his fate is sealed. It's a done deal. It's just how that will play out. Like we tend to think of that as the triumphal entry. Not so much. This was the beginning of the end, especially in John. That's made incredibly clear. So here he is, with all his pain, with all his uncertainty, with all his doubts. And we know he had doubts. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane is all about. And she gives him this incredible gift. She washes his feet. She takes the place of a slave, this woman of the house. And they were, like some of the people say, oh, well, they were poor people. But if you translate Jews, the word that is usually translated as Jews to Judean elite, and most commentators say it should really be translated Judean elite, not the Jews. The Judean elite, she is a member of the Judean elite. The Judean elite, the wealthy, the ones who under Herod have become powerful and wealthy and have continued to be powerful and wealthy under the Romans, she is one of them. They are the ones that need to get rid of Jesus because it's their place in society that is under threat if he carries on. She is one of them and she takes the place of a slave. And she uses this incredibly expensive perfume which for a day labourer was a year's wage and for her probably was nothing. And some of the commentators go, was that left over from Lazarus's? Anointed, who had been anointed only days earlier, embalmed and placed in the tomb. 
And she uses it on Jesus, not on his head, but on his feet. This is all about burial, not anointing. And then she uses her hair to dry, to wipe that feet, those feet. Now, I mean, that's just scandalous. All of that is scandalous. She, a woman of means, who has shames her family by taking the place of a slave, as Jesus will do in a few days' time. Like we, we will reenact Jesus washing the feet, or here's Mary preempting him. She does it first. And she touches the foot of a man who is not her husband, and she lets her hair out in public, all of which is scandalous. Just imagine that happening in a conservative Muslim country or Druze or even some of the Jew conservative Jewish communities today. They would be scandalised. That just doesn't happen. But she doesn't. Why? Because she has been found by love. Love means she doesn't have to be compliant. Love means she's not better than anyone else. Love means she is simply a beloved daughter. And she responds to that in this way. In a way that gives him the courage so that he might carry on. And just as that fragrance filled the house, that fragrance will linger with him through the days ahead as he rides the donkey down into Jerusalem, as he is betrayed and abandoned, as he is tried and eventually crucified. He receives the anointing with oil that no one who is crucified ever gets. They are simply bodies on a cross left to rot and be eaten until eventually they're taken down and thrown in the garbage dump. That was his fate. Last week we heard about the outrageous, the scandalous, the unthinkable love of a father. This week we read about the outrageous, the scandalous, unthinkable response to that love of Mary. And it asks us a question. How do, how do we know that love? And if we do, how do we respond to that love? There's one last thread about the story I want to explore, and that's Jesus' comments to Judas. You, have, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It's a line that's been used for the last 2,000 years to justify not doing work with the poor, to diverting money, to building wonderful churches and things like that, because the poor we always have with us. A couple of the commentators point out that the Greek is very ambiguous. It can be translated two ways. It can be translated, you always have the poor with you, or it can be translated just as legitimately, and that particular grammatical construction is regularly translated this way throughout the Gospels, have the poor with you always, which means keep the poor among you always. So which of these fits with the Jesus of the Gospels? Well, the latter one, 
Jesus is always on the side of the poor. Always. It's one of the things that gets him into trouble. At no point would Jesus ever say, just discard the poor, ignore them, you always have them, don't worry about them, just focus on me like a Kathleen Kim episode. It's just not how Jesus operates. And some people have said, well, there's some echoes here from Deuteronomy 15 verse 11, which says, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, that sounds pretty similar, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbour in your land. So that's the beginning of the law about how the people of God were to treat the poor and the aliens. How they were not to harvest everything. How they were to welcome them. How they were to treat them justly and fairly. Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbour in your land. We often read Mary's action as an either-or. That's how Judas was describing it. That's not how Jesus was describing it. Judas was like, you shouldn't have done that. You should have sold that and given that to the poor because it's just about the poor. But maybe Jesus was saying, well, let's do both. We can do both. It's not an either or. Mary's response to Jesus didn't preclude an equally scandalous response to the poor of her time. And one could suggest that maybe one of the ways we respond to the love that we are beloved children of God is by equally outrageous and scandalous acts of love to others. Because that's where we discover the crucified and risen Christ in our brothers and sisters. So where are you in these stories? How do you see the world? How do you make sense of the world? Through the worldviews of rivalry? The worldviews of compliance? Or the worldview of scandalous, outrageous love? And if it's scandalous, outrageous love, how do you respond to the love we are freely given? And what scandalous and outrageous ways of living love are you invited into this Lent?